Good morning. Grab your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're speedily making our way through 2 Corinthians. That was a joke. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll look at a full six verses today. So as we turn there, as you get there, I want to set the stage and, and set up the topic we're going to be talking about. Something that if you've got any experience in your Christian life, um, you've dealt with this issue, and it's the idea of being prepared. I don't know if you've um, ever been in a ministry scenario, an opportunity for the gospel, making disciples, a conversation with your neighbor, and you knew you needed to use this somehow for the kingdom, and you just didn't know what to do. Didn't know how to go forward, or maybe didn't go forward, maybe didn't take the opportunity, precisely because you just weren't sure. Weren't sure you knew what to say, weren't sure you knew what to do, weren't sure you knew how to comfort someone who was in loss, weren't sure you knew how to hug someone who was in grief. You weren't sure you knew how to convey the gospel to someone who was seeking. You're just not sure what's going on, not prepared. And our goal at Church of the Square is to make you a mature disciple maker. We want that for all of us. We want to grow in our disciple making. And one of our definitions of that is that you are prepared in mind uh, to do the work of disciple making, to have a Christian worldview. I know a lot of young people grow up in what we might call evangelical subculture, this Christian subculture, and they go off to college and fast forward four years, have nothing to do with the Christian faith anymore. And a lot of times it's because their worldview was simply not prepared. When you go watch a movie, I love going to the movies, I loved watching the, the Marvel movies climax with the, the Big Avengers Endgame movie recently, I enjoy that, but when we watch movies like that, we have to recognize that our worldview is different than theirs, and there's ways it's similar, ways it's not the same, and if we know what our worldview is, then we're prepared to deal with a worldview that's different than ours. We live in a secular culture, which secular is a bit of a misnomer. Our culture is not secular. It's just a type of religious that's called secular, even though secular means not religious. You follow what I'm saying, though? It's still religious. It's just a not religious religious. And uh, we live in a worldview that's contrary to ours, and we don't always know what to say, what to do. We want to equip you with a worldview, a biblical worldview, a mindset for understanding how to engage in the world around you. And as we look at Paul this morning, as we're studying this scenario in, in Corinth and this letter that he's written, I'm going to try to share with you a basic principle that has two pieces about how we as Christians interact with the world in a way that's prepared. Because in one sense, we've got this concept that we don't feel like we're ever prepared enough to answer all of the questions. I know some people are trigger happy on Facebook and will answer a question no matter what the topic is, and then some people are scared to speak at all because they're worried to make, say something stupid or say something that's not correct or, or not engaged in the right amount. And so there's, there's both that sense of being prepared, and there's also that sense in trusting in God and relying on His work, His gospel, His fruit, rather than our own. So we're going to see both sides of that coin come together Sorry, <clears throat> in the passage this morning as Paul is defending himself and talking to this church at Corinth. So let's dive in, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 1. We'll read a little bit, and then we'll kind of build our context again. You probably remember some of it from the last few weeks, but let's just dive right into the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So remember, Paul is writing to a church that has only recently reestablished friendly terms with him. They had rejected him, so Paul planted the church, and then he left, 
things got a little shaky, so he wrote a letter um, to the church, and they wrote a letter to him and asked questions. So he writes this letter to the church, answering a lot of theology questions, but also kind of getting real with them about the, the, the things going on in the church, the division, some of their theological error, and we call that letter 1 Corinthians. After that letter is received, things go very poorly between Paul and that church. They break down in their relationship. Another group of people move in and don't like Paul. They argue against Paul, and eventually it gets so bad, Paul goes and shows up in person to settle the matter, but that doesn't go well at all. The church takes the other side against Paul, kicks Paul out of the church. He leaves wounded. He leaves broken. He leaves very upset, has a hard time doing ministry in that scenario, writes a very severe letter to the church, and finally, after some time, receives word back from Titus that the church had repented. They, they kicked out. They really excommunicated the leader of the group who had kicked him out, and now the church is returning to Paul. Paul hasn't seen them yet. He knows they've repented, and he's writing what we call 2 Corinthians to the church. And in the previous paragraph, he had mentioned how him and Timothy and Titus and Silas and these other guys on Paul's side, it says they're preaching the word. They're not peddlers of God's word. They're not just preaching to make a show. They're not preaching to get a nicer jet. They're not preaching to get you to put in your, your seed money so they can bless their ministry and return it a hundredfold. You get what I'm sitting at, right? You're talking about. All right, they're not doing that. They're genuinely just preaching the word in sincerity. They're trying to do it faithfully, truthfully, because they believe in the power of God. And so remember, in the New Testament, in all of the Bible, actually, the chapters and the verse numbers are not original. So Paul did not stop at the end of the last paragraph Put a period, and then write three, start over verse one, new topic, new idea. That's not what's happening for Paul. This is just next sentence for Paul. So he went from saying, we're doing this right. We are faithful apostles before the Lord. We were called. We were made apostles by the Lord himself. We are preaching the gospel faithfully. Now, you can imagine after making a statement like that, getting up, it'd be like me getting up here and saying, guys, I'm a good pastor. I really do this job well. All right, now, if I said that, what's your first thought? No, oh, maybe I don't need to say that. Okay. <laughs> I don't want your feedback on that. Never mind. So, <laughs> no, you get what I'm saying, though. Like, that seems like, eh, that's kind of, that's a little direct, isn't it? That's what Paul's saying, though. He's like, guys, I'm, I'm a good apostle. I'm, I do this job well. Like, I'm sincere. My motives are pure. I do a good job. There's actually a pretty good bit of fruit across the entire Mediterranean world because of the work I'm doing. I'm doing a good job. Now, that could very easily be misinterpreted, right? As Paul doing what? Boasting, bragging. Like, I mean, he almost does that in some passages, right? Where he's like, man, you, you want to talk about those super apostles, those super Jews? Yeah, well, they were, they were good Jews. So was I. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's for the law was zealous. Basically, he says, I was actually better at playing that game than they are. I was a better Pharisee than they are. I was a much better hypocrite than you. <laughs> is what Paul was saying. He's got the, he knows himself. He knows who he is. And so that's how he ended the last paragraph. And so he starts this paragraph by saying, now, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? That's one of the accusations. As Paul's going around 
making a big deal about who he is. But Paul was never making a big deal about who he was. What was Paul making a big deal about? About Jesus. It's like, Paul's not saying that I'm such a big deal that while I was on this road to Damascus, Jesus himself came to meet me. That's not Paul's message. Paul's message is that he was the chief of sinners on his way to commit what could be called the chief of sins, to to persecute the body of Christ directly. He was so bad that God had to intervene directly in his life. And that's Paul's boast, is that I was as bad as it gets. And out of his goodness and his grace and his sovereignty, he plucked me out of the miry clay and he remade me into the Apostle Paul. This is Paul's message. So when he talks about himself, he's not bragging in himself. He's boasting in what the Lord has done. He's boasting in the transition from Pharisee of Pharisees to apostle to the Gentiles. And so are we beginning to commend ourselves again? What do you think Paul's answer to the question is? Well, no. He's not commending himself. He's setting himself forward as proof that God changes lives, as proof that God can save people like Paul. Now, have you ever wondered if you were so far gone that you're beyond hope? Or maybe your neighbor is so far gone, he's beyond hope. Doesn't matter you or someone else. Paul is proof that nothing is beyond the scope of the gospel. So he's not commending himself. Truly, he's, he's commending God. This is, or do we need, change the question a little bit, as some do, now that's kind of like a veiled reference he's, he's making fun of. The super apostles is what he calls them later. And when he says super apostles, he's totally meaning that in a negative way. Super Christians. You ever use that term super Christian? No? All right. Usually when we say super Christian, do we mean that positively or negatively? We usually mean it that. Oh, that guy's a super Christian. We're like, uh, hypocrite? Maybe, you know, somebody who puts Jesus in every sentence of every paragraph of every communication they have, we kind of have this idea that, okay, they're trying too hard. All right, they're covering something. They're trying to present themselves. That's his attitude towards these super apostles. They came with these special letters of recommendation. All right, name dropping. Have you ever name dropped? You know, I used to, I love to name drop. I don't have very many names to drop, so it's not that helpful. But uh, I would, no lie, I have totally name dropped that my sister worked on the same staff as David Platt before. As though that gives me anything, you know. Not, I've never even met the dude, but uh, here I am. Oh, my sister worked for him, you know. It's like, as though that gives me some street cred. Right, that's name dropping. Right, that's what these super apostles were doing. So I guess I just put myself in their own camp. All right, so the super apostles, they come up with these letters of recommendation. We don't know where they're from. Maybe, maybe some guys back in Jerusalem. This is, we, we got official names we can throw down that show we are legit. And Paul's saying, me, the apostle Paul, Silas, Peter even, Timothy, Titus, do we need letters of recommendation from someone for you to trust us? Do we need letters of recommendation to you? So think about what he's saying. So Paul shows up in Corinth to the church at Corinth. Should the apostle Paul need a reference letter? They come with this letter and say, all right, see here, the church at Jerusalem endorses me. Now, we're more like, because we live in a New Testament world, we've studied the Scriptures, we know the Apostle Paul. If someone had a letter of recommendation from Paul, we'd be like, oh, wow, this dude is legit. So when Paul says, 
welcome Timothy. That is a letter of recommendation. That is a super letter of recommendation. Paul's saying, does he need one? After all, what is Paul? What word do we use to describe the position that he holds in the early church? Apostle. He's an apostle. We're talking about the group of people who God had granted, Jesus had directly granted some of his authority to them. We ask for God to do things. We ask for God to heal. We, we beseech the Lord. We make supplication. The apostle Paul could accidentally heal someone. There was that much authority. He could sneeze on a cloth and the snot could heal someone. This is that Paul we're talking about. Does he need letters of recommendation, or to reverse it, does he need recommendations from you? Does he he need to get references from all these churches where he goes to prove that he's legitimately an apostle? Now, these are stupid questions, really. Paul's just trying to make a point. This is pointless. I, for one, the apostle Paul, do not need these letters of recommendation. Why should you? Here's what he said. Verse 2 is beautiful. He says, you yourselves, so when he says you yourselves, he's specifically talking to the church at Corinth. Now, think about who this church is. This is the church that needed 1 Corinthians to be written. They needed to know that certain things were sin. If you read 1 Corinthians, you wonder, how did they not know that that was wrong? Well, that's how pagan their culture was. But it's that church. The question is, was Corinth an unhealthy church because people were so sinful? Or was it really a healthy church at disciple-making because they had so many ungodly people coming? You know, you can look at it from both sides, but they very messed up church. You can look at it and see the disunity, see the sin, all sorts of categories of sin. That church, that's who he's talking about, the church who until very recently rejected him publicly. He says, you yourselves, that group of people, you are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Now think about the illustration. Paul's saying that the behavior of the church at Corinth is Paul's letter of recommendation for the world to read. See how that works? That the way they act demonstrates the effectiveness of Paul's message. Well, that's kind of hard if you think about it, that the way a church acts could publicly display, make a statement about the fruitfulness of the gospel. Furthermore, he goes a step deeper than that. Verse 3, he says, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now that lingo, tablets of stone versus tablets of human hearts. This is very common lingo for Paul. Paul's talking about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which is exactly what he's going to go into in the next paragraph. So we know for sure that's what he's talking about here. The tablets of stone is a direct reference to what thing in the Old Testament? Get one guess. Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone, which is symbolic of our relationship with God based on law. We can obey God and be blessed. We disobey God. We are cursed. He will call that in in verse 7, the ministry of death. That's the old covenant. It's the ministry of death. 
Now, that's not what he came to preach, though. He's preaching, rather, about tablets of human hearts being written on by the Spirit. So not about you doing good works to get saved, but rather you're dead in spirit. This is the biblical teaching. Paul uses this over and over and over again. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You, you walked in this. You followed the course of the world. You followed the prince of the power of the air. You followed the own passions and desires of your flesh. And because of that, you were children of wrath like all of mankind. This is our natural state. And Paul's saying, the gospel is clear, in that state, dead in sin, there's no way tablets of stone can help you. You can't get a list of commandments. You can't get a list of things that if you do, will qualify you for heaven. These are the basics of the gospel, right? The only thing we contribute to salvation is what? Sin. The need for salvation. We can put nothing positive on it at all. All we do is need a Savior. That's why the gospel in the New Testament is based around this idea of God writing not on tablets, but on the human heart, on tablets of stone. Sorry. Well, maybe they are kind of like stone. Tablets of human flesh. And what's this, Paul, what is Paul's lingo there? He does a heart change. And this is what the whole book of Hebrews is about. We see this consistently played out in the New Testament. God's not giving us rules to follow. He's transforming us into His Son on the inside. This is the gospel. Is that Not that I can just pray some prayer that gets me forgiven of sin, but rather that the Spirit of God Himself can do a transforming work inside of me. So here's what Paul's saying. The work that he did in Corinth is God's message of salvation to the world. They are the letter of recommendation. Every changed life is a letter of recommendation. Let's fill in the first blank on your outline. Changed lives demonstrate the power of God to the world. Now think about it. If we were preaching a gospel message, you just pray this prayer, you get to go to heaven when you die, otherwise life continues as it is, is that really good news? Is that really demonstrating the power of God? Of course it wouldn't. We're just saying, okay, well, I prayed some special prayer. I get to go to heaven when I die. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. It's not. It's not biblical at all. The concept of the Bible is that God changes your life. If the blood of Jesus does a work in you, that work can be seen. Jesus consistently uses imagery to show that if you get saved, there is fruit. He would tell us in the end of the Sermon on the Mount quite explicitly, you will know, you will know the tree by its what? Fruit. Makes it very clear. When Jesus saves someone, does anything change in their lives? Yes. And if nothing changes in their lives, we also know that what didn't happen? They didn't get saved. The power of God works 100% of the time. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 6, the gospel bears fruit every time. The word does not return void. It always does its work. And so we know the gospel's working somewhere when lives change. Has the gospel made you a different person? 
Can you look at things in your life and say, I'm where I am today because the gospel has done a work. I do what I do today because the gospel has done a work. I don't do what I used to do because the gospel has done a work. And hopefully the answer to that is yes. And if it's yes, that answer also is a demonstration of God's power. That the world can see in you transformation, God's power at work. So, Paul's setting all this up to say we're preaching a gospel that changes lives. Now, he had asked that question in the previous paragraph. You look up back in chapter 2, verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? That's still the question that's being addressed. Who's prepared? Who's ready? Who can do this kind of work? All right, verse 4 in chapter 3. Let's, let's get Paul's answer. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. So what made Paul good at preaching the gospel? God did. God is what made Paul good at that. Now was Paul, is it fair to say that Paul was good at it? Or is it just fair to say that the message he was preaching was good at saving people? It's a little tricky to answer that question, isn't it? Because you want to say it's just the message, right? But can you share the message really stupidly? Have you ever heard someone share the message really stupidly? And you're like, dude, that's totally not working. You should ask Anna about her elevator story one day. All right, it's a glorious way of not sharing, not her, but someone shared. She, she looked like a heathen, so they wanted to save her, you know, in case the elevator crashed. Ask her. It's a fun story. So anyway, we, we know that how you share the gospel matters, right? So... We, we could right out of the gate say, no matter how well you preach the gospel, if you're living like a heathen, if you are living in sin openly, brazenly, and you share the gospel, it's not going to have the same fruit as if you are sharing the gospel, living in gospel transformation, right? So we automatically know that so, there's some competency level, there's some need for the way we deliver the message to be adequate for it to be effective, but the whole conversation only works because the message is what's effective. You follow what I'm saying here? So we've kind of got two different pieces to this puzzle, and we need both of them to come together in a useful way. So number one, our confidence as ministers of God is not in our ability, but in our Savior. We need to be very clear about this. You don't save anyone. You don't bring life change to people. You are a conduit at best. The Savior is Jesus Christ. Paul, every time he's commending how great he is at something, he's never doing it to say he's great. He's doing it to say, look what God did. Look at how wonderful our Savior is. He did this in me. He took me from chief of sinners to minister to the Gentiles. He gave me this grace. He did this amazing thing. In my life, that's what we believe and that's what we put our confidence in, that God can and will use people like us to change the world. I mean, think about Moses. Moses, when he got commissioned to take this message to the Hebrews and then to Pharaoh, what was his answer? Do you remember? God said, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses said, nope, not doing it. It took a whole chapter of God going back and forth with Moses to get Moses to kind of say yes in a certain veiled sort of way. You remember what the, the caveat was? The, the, I'm only going if Aaron speaks for me. 
But God still used him. God still split the sea. God still brought fire down from heaven through this guy named Moses. You think about Elijah. Elijah, after the Mount Carmel experience, y'all remember that where fire comes down, consumes the altar, and then he kills all the, the priests of Baal. Then he runs and hides in a cave and is crying and all self-loathing because everyone hates him and he's not a very good prophet. And God even shows up and is like, Elijah, what are you doing? What are you doing here? These are our good examples. Think of David, right? I mean, David, the man after God's own heart, yet totally messed up in some specific ways. You read his story, lots of sin, right? The competence, the confidence in all of these characters is not in their abilities. I read the book of Judges. It's not in these guys. It's in their Savior. It's in their God. It's the same true of us. Our confidence is that God can and will use people like us for the gospel. He does it every day all over the world. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. That's one half of the coin. Let's flip the coin. Read verse 6. Who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now we're not going to unpack the theological implications of that verse because that's what the next paragraph is about. So we're just going to take that main idea. The Spirit gives life. So the Holy Spirit makes us competent. So here's what we're saying. We should rest all of our confidence that God is the one doing his work. God is the one who has a plan. He is going to accomplish his plan no matter what. The other side of the same coin is that that God who's going to build his church, who's going to do his work, is also going to prepare you. I mean, think about Moses. You know, Moses always gets told, we we say the story that Moses... He wasn't real good at speaking. That's why he was scared to do this. That's actually not true. The Bible does not say that. That's what Moses said. The Bible says that Moses was powerful in word. That's how he's described. Powerful in word. Think about it. Where did Moses grow up? What country? Egypt. Did he grow up Hebrew or Egyptian? Egyptian. So he would have been educated in what language? Egyptian. Studying whose academic course material. Egyptian course material. Guess what their number one number one element of their education system was at that point in history? Public speaking. Moses had a PhD in public speaking. Before he ever told God, well, I don't speak so good. This is Moses. And God was preparing Moses all along for his ministry. He did 40 years learning how to be a public speaker, 40 years learning how to live in the desert. And then he spent the last 40 years of his life public speaking, leading people in the desert. God was preparing him for all of this all along the way. Think about the Apostle Paul. God was preparing Paul for this work of ministry. He was a Jew who knew the law better than any of his contemporaries, yet he grew up in a Greek city, learning the Greek culture, the Greek system of thought, the Greek worldview. And then he becomes a minister doing what? Teaching that scriptures through the light of the New Testament to Greek 
Greek-speaking people. Who was sovereign over all of that? Who planned all of that? Whose idea was this? It's not Paul's. The early church didn't get together and say, who would be the best guy to take the gospel to the Greeks? They didn't do that. We don't do that. God is the one who sets us apart and calls us to do a work, but he makes us competent to do the work he has called us to do. That's your last point. God makes us competent to do the work he has called us to do. Now, I want to answer the question about how he does that. Let me show you a verse. Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to see this idea. We're going to close with this concept. So there's this cool verse where it says, Therefore it says, um, When he ascended on high, that is Christ, he led host captives and gave gifts to men. The imagery is that God conquered through Christ, sin and death, conquered the world. He ascended up on the mountain, and in that sense it's the ascension. Now he sits at the right hand of God the Father, and from that position he gives gifts to men. Here's what he gave, verse 11. He gave them apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. That's what I do. That's what the elders at this church do. He gave us all of this. He gave us the word for what end, to what purpose, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. God has gifted the church, both in teachers and pastors and the word and books and material and in every spiritual gift and every believer in this room for the purpose of training one another to build up the body of Christ so that we would be mature. That's how he does it. So we rest in the confidence that our Savior is the one who will build the church. But that confidence spills over into knowing that God is going to do a work in you to make you competent to make disciples, going to make you competent to lead your family, make you competent to train your children, make you competent to have a gospel, biblical-oriented marriage, make you competent to be a disciple-maker in your place of work. God has designed the church to produce this. That's what we're here for. That's why we love one another. That's why we gather, grow, and go. We come together as a church to equip one another for the work of ministry. This is what God does. He makes us competent by provoking us through one another to love and good deeds. He uses the body of Christ to make us mature disciple makers. So if you want to be prepared to do life with a biblical worldview, you've got to plug into community. You've got to plug into the gathering. You've got to plug into the word. You've got to plug into a small group, and you've got to start trying to make disciples. If you're doing all of those things, the Spirit of God is going to do a work in you to transform you into the person He has designed you to be. So let us surrender our lives to that work of ministry. Let's have confidence in God and let's grow in our competence through our community together.